Bridge. I want to welcome all of you. I want to greet our Bettendorf family, those joining us online, again, all of you here at Rock Island, to week one of What If, a journey that will take us through the summer and through the book of Philippians, imagining the possibilities along the way. Now, we're a church that is committed to loving God, loving others, and making disciples. And we talk about that in terms of living loved, living linked, and living sent. And we do those three things as part of a worldwide movement of Jesus. But our ability to live into those three things requires us to interact with God's instructions for life. And this what-if journey is a great opportunity for us to do that in one particular part of the Bible, the letter to the church in Philippi. And I'm really excited and stoked for this journey. We've got some cool elements included for the whole process. But with that in mind, I actually want to begin by pointing out that every significant movement in history has started when somebody asked a what-if question. What if? When someone who could see more or someone who wanted more asked what if? You ever notice that? You think of like Martin Luther. Martin Luther asked the what-if question of what if we could put the Bible in the hands of common people? radically changed many things. The Wright brothers asked, what if we could fly? Even Martin Luther King Jr. asked, what if we actually treated people as equals? The Israelites asked the question, what if we can live in the promised land? And even the disciples asked the what if question of, what if Jesus meant everything he said? Every significant movement in history has been started when somebody asked a what if question. So we're taking time to walk through the book of Philippians this summer and ask our own life-changing what-if questions along the way. And today, I want to frame that journey, and I want to begin to paint the picture of Paul as someone who is writing a letter to friends, writing a letter to his spiritual family, if you would, to say thank you, to encourage them, but also to challenge them to live out the gospel with expectancy expectantly living out the gospel, because followers of Jesus live with expectancy. That's your first fill-in if you're using the note guide today. Followers of Jesus live with expectancy. They live with what? Expectancy. That means they ask what if questions, not what for or how come, but what if. Now, I've got to be honest with you, as I have been preparing to launch this series, a series that hinges on the reality of expectancy and asking what if, I have struggled. The dynamic of ministry for me is best of times, worst of times. Best of times in that God is doing incredibly cool things that can only be explained by his hand, and I absolutely love it. But it's worst of times because the enemy is messing with all of it. It's best of times, worst of times. Now, sometimes the fact that the enemy's messing with it can be inspiring, that we're actually doing something significant enough that he wants to mess with it. It can be inspiring, but it can also be pretty irritating. (laughs) But as a follower of Jesus, living with expectancy, we need to be able to see the beauty amidst the adversity, the joy amidst the sorrow, the the peace amidst the storm, the best of times, worst of times. But I got to tell you, I can struggle with that. Yet followers of Jesus live with expectancy. We're positioned to ask what if. We're positioned to see what can be or what is not yet. Not just what is. And we do that in our lives and we can do that with the lives of other people. 
And I'm so glad that God does that. I'm grateful that he didn't just look at me in my life and say, this is all that is and therefore that's it. He looked at me and still looks at me and says, you know what, Sean, there still can be things that are not yet in your life. And when you and I live with expectancy and we ask the what if questions, we start to reflect him because he does that. He sees the not yet, the things that can be. And Paul did the same thing. And he does it in the book of Philippians. So I want to get into that scripture today. I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible, to click or turn to the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament. You're going to find it after the first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Yeah, Colossians are too far. We're going to be in Philippians. And as you're turning, let me just give you a bit of context for what this is. And I want to tell you that, that this first day of the series may feel a little more academic. There's a lot of information to it, but we're laying a foundation that'll walk us through the rest of the journey. The rest of this letter, which was a personal letter written by Paul to the church, the people of God in a place known as Philippi. It's considered to be one of the prison epistles, along with Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. But it wasn't written to be circulated like Ephesians was written to be circulated. It was written for the church in Philippi. And it was also written while Paul was in confinement. Uh, many believe that was in Rome. There's some debate that it was while he was in Ephesus or Caesarea. But most likely he was in Rome. And if that was the case, then he was in a rented house chained to a Roman guard for two years. Yet out of that adversity, <laughs> this book is still marked with joy. In fact, he uses the word joy or rejoice 16 times. And this book is considered to be the most gentle of his letters. There's not scolding in it. It's more really of a love letter that he's writing to people whom he loves. But beyond the joy component, Paul's passion was to keep Jesus central, to make Jesus known. And it is unmistakably clear that Jesus is central in this letter. He references Jesus 40 times, and he speaks specifically of him by name 21 times. Jesus is central in this journey, and what Paul is doing, he's painting this picture of our ability to triumph over circumstances as we put our trust in Jesus. The best of times, worst of times stuff of life, as we trust in Jesus, there is triumph and victory in that. And he positions us to ask the what-if question. So let's get into it, let's read, and I want to encourage you as we go through this whole journey to be very intentional in how you engage Scripture. I encourage you to, to use a process of observe, interpret, apply. It's just a very simple way to say, what is this saying? What does it mean, and how do I live as a result? Observe, interpret, and apply. And as we go, there's spaces on the note guide. There's even some lines near some scriptures for you to do your own observe, interpret, and apply as we go through this. So let's jump into it. This is, Philipp this is uh, Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul starts out this letter in very typical fashion for this time. He identifies the sender, he identifies the recipients, and he gives a greeting, which is not all that different than how we correspond today. When we write a letter or write an email, there's a to, there's a from, and there's a subject line that often we throw a greeting in there. And, and Paul is doing that, except he's doing it in a unique way in the fact that he connects himself to Timothy. Not as a co-author, because in verse 3, he's going to switch to the first person pronoun really quick and say, I. But he's connecting himself to Timothy because of Timothy's significance in Paul's ministry. See, Paul is getting ready to send Timothy to Philippi, 
instead of being able to go himself. We're going to see that in chapter 2. But beyond that, he's positioning Timothy with significance. He's, he's mentoring and developing Tim, Timothy, and that's one of the strengths that Paul had of raising up others and positioning them to be empowered and released to go and live out the gospel and advance the gospel on their own. And he's connecting Timothy into that ministry, and from the very first line, associates himself with Timothy to give him credibility. And I find that what Paul does in that is sets an example for us that we even kind of talked about this. At the end of the Family Tree series, we talked about three levels of relationship that we should be looking to have. We talked about being invested in those who have gone before us, those beside us, and those behind us. That we as individuals should have a relationship where we're being mentored, we have accountability among peers, and we're, and we're being a mentor. Three levels of relationship. And Paul's relationship to Timothy was one of mentoring someone behind him. He had someone behind him. He was mentoring Timothy to position him for more, to lead him into the next season of life. And I hope that you as an individual who walks with Jesus are taking the time to invest in those three levels and that you're not just being mentored or having accountability, but you're actually pouring into somebody else. What if, what if we were all positioned to pour into those behind us so that generations to come are different. It matters, and Timothy and Paul had a relationship where that was able to be accomplished, able to be done. Now, as we step further into the scripture here, Paul kind of transitions to a couple things, but I wonder if you were to describe yourself in five words or less, how would you do it? In fact, let's just do this, and Bettendorf pop in on this. I want you to turn to someone and in five words or less, describe yourself. If you don't have somebody to talk to, just write it down, but I encourage you to turn to somebody in five words or less, introduce yourself. Ready, set, go. Oh, come on. You don't have to give a Sunday school answer. Just give out some answers. This is who I am. Five words or less. Some of you are like, what, I have to talk? What? No, I'm not going to do that. Five words or less. Introduce yourself to somebody next to you. All right. Okay. If you're still talking, that's way more than five words. I, you know, if I were to do, you may, maybe use your vocation, maybe use your family dynamic. I, I could say husband, father, pastor, veteran, friend. There you go. Five words. And maybe you did something similar. But Paul uses four. Paul says, servant of Christ Jesus. What if we all primarily identified ourselves as servants of Christ Jesus, first and foremost? To be a servant of him, to submit to his authority, when Paul uses this word servant, the actual word is slave or bond servant, and, and it was kind of a, more of a demeaning term, as a, a term of subservience, but, but to serve Jesus is an honor. To do anything in the name of Jesus is an honor. What if we lived that way? What if we identified ourselves first and foremost as servants of Jesus? If we did, then everything that we owned would be the masters. Uh, we would spend our time serving and pleasing the master. We, we would have our identity in the master's position, not our position. And we, we would be positioned to, to receive blessing and provision and care from the master. In fact, we could actually have life to the full because what Jesus says, then we follow him, we can have that life. Then we believe in our heart and profess with our mouth that he is Lord. He is master. 
then we can have life and life to the full. And when we make that particular decision, we then become what Paul references in the very next part of this beginning of the chapter, where he says that this is to all God's holy people. In some translations, they use the word saints. To the saints. Now, saints in this context is not a term just about moral purity, but it's really about association. It's association in or with Christ Jesus. Being associated with him. To belong to God, set apart as holy for his service. It it carries a moral aspect of Christ-like purity and integrity, but it's in Jesus. That's what Paul says, to the God's holy people in Christ Jesus. The identity being defined, our identity being defined by the master. And and this is a Christ-centered letter because Paul wants the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi, to be a Christ-centered people. God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Then he moves into, together with the overseers and deacons. Now, what's interesting about that, the the qualifications for these folks can be found in 1 Timothy. But it's interesting that this is the only letter in all of Paul's writing that he actually singles out officials of the church as recipients. It could be because he knew these people. He, He had planted the church They had sent him a gift and sent him Epaphroditus. There was a relationship there. He was like a spiritual father to the folks in the church in Philippi. In fact, his first visit to Philippi was a significant shift in moving the gospel into the greater world, into reaching the Gentiles. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 16. So as we begin this process, I think it's helpful to have a little bit of backstory about the people in the place. And so if you've got a Bible, keep your thumb in Philippians and turn with me to Acts 16. Because Acts 16 gives us some context for what's happening in this journey in Philippi. Let me show you a map, though, as as you're turning. Let me show you where Philippi would actually be located. This is in your note guide, so you can see it closer if you can't see it here. But we've got Italy and Rome way up here in the top corner. We've got Jerusalem down here in the opposite bottom corner. And Philippi is located here in what is labeled as Macedonia. It's in northern Macedonia, which would be modern-day Greece today. It was a Roman province. It was a prosperous Roman province. It was a gold mining area. And, and Philippi itself was named after Philip II of Macedon. He actually built the city in 356 BC, and it, and it existed until the 14th century in the Ottoman conquest. But what's interesting about Philippi is that it was the kind of a crossroads place between Europe and Asia. It was a significant city. In fact, verse 12 in Acts 16 identifies it in Scripture as a leading city. It was a prosperous Roman city, but it also becomes the location of the very first church plant in Europe through Paul's ministry. Now, we often talk about Paul as a missionary, but it is more accurate to describe him as a church planter because that's what he did. He did it with a missional posture, but he was a church planter at heart. And Philippi was the first church plant in Europe, and it it actually a number of cool things happened in Philippi. Timothy joins up with Paul and Silas there. God begins to change lives there. Uh, Paul and Silas are, are beaten and imprisoned, and then they sing, and the, and the place shakes, and they're released, and then, and then the jailer gets saved. Now, some of you may think that the shortest person in the Bible is Zacchaeus, right? You heard that, you know that. It wasn't really Zacchaeus. Some people think it was Bildad the shoe height, because he was the height of a shoe. But it was really the Philippian jailer, who was the smallest, shortest guy in the Bible, because he fell asleep on his watch. 
Yes, I did. Yes, I did. All right, so the deal is that in this dynamic, that Acts 16 is really setting a stage for us to understand how this all happens, how Paul ends up there and how the church gets there, because what we're going to read, we're going to see how, how Paul was maneuvering and trying to get to where he wanted to go. In fact, if I show you a different map here for a second, you can see down here is Jerusalem and up here is Philippi, and there's this red line that kind of runs up through this area, and we're, we see in Scripture that Paul's kind of moving through this area, trying to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit stops him. And then he tries to move north into Bithynia, and he's, he's stopped by the Spirit of Jesus. But then they end up in Troas, over here next to the Aegean Sea, and, and this is where, in Acts chapter 16, Paul gets a vision to go to Macedonia, which leads to the church plant in Philippi. So this is where we're picking it up, Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 9. Here we go. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, this is written by Luke, and Luke is capturing details that, that actually set up for us an understanding of what God is doing in this dynamic. Now, we can see that they were prevented, but we don't know how they are prevented. Like, did, did God just physically move in that moment? Did they just not have agreement to know which way to go? But they were stopped. And it seems odd that they would go this way and that way, not really know where to go. And maybe it's because guys just don't stop to ask directions. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what's happening. The Spirit was moving and directing them to get to Troas so that God could speak to Paul so that they could actually end up in Macedonia and begin a whole other advancement of the gospel. But here's what I find encouragement in, that, that just like all of us, there were times for Paul where he wasn't sure what the next step was, wasn't sure where he was to go next. And I find encouragement in that. But I also find a challenge in it, because I think we need to be like Paul. We need to be a people who, even though we don't know what the next step is, we're persistent enough to pursue God until he gives us a vision, a vision for a people and a place. What if we did that? What if you lived that way, pursuing God until he gives you a passion for people in a place? What if we actually moved into our own Macedonia? We actually moved into a relationship with our neighbor. We actually stepped into helping a single mother. Actually stepped into working with a child who's struggling in school or struggling in life. What if we moved toward our Macedonia? For Paul, that, that looked like going there, investing, teaching, seeing people come to Jesus, but it also involved getting beaten and imprisoned. Hardship. Best of times, worst of times. It also involved being released. What if we actually lived in a manner that we could see our Macedonia reached? It's important because it's not enough that our hearts are different. Our cities should be as well. This is something we've talked about before. It's not enough that our hearts are different. Our cities should be different as well. The gospel is, is not just to transform individuals, although it is to transform individuals. It's not limited to transforming individuals. It's to transform communities, transform cities. What if we lived into our Macedonia? Paul talks, or excuse me, Luke writes about three people that were influenced through Paul's ministry in Philippi. He talks about a businesswoman named Lydia, talks about a slave girl who was demon-possessed, and then the Philippian jailer. The gospel transforms society at every level. 
It is not enough that our hearts are different. Our cities should be as well. What if the gospel wasn't just a church thing, but we actually had a posture that it was about the community? Because I, sadly, I think many churches just keep the gospel to the church when the, ch the gospel is for the world. It's not enough that our hearts are different. Our, our cities should be as well. Because fundamentally, the gospel is not something we're just to maintain. The gospel is something to be advanced. If you're still tracking your note guide, that's the next fill-in, that the gospel is not something to maintain, but advance. It's not about maintaining and protecting. It's about advancing and achieving. It's about moving forward. It's why God sends us. It's why we're called to be a sent people. The gospel is about advancing, not just maintaining. So with all of that information, this sets the backstory and some of the context for what we're looking at in our what-if journey, where Paul is writing to friends. He's missing some friends, and he's writing to them. And he's preparing to engage in a manner where he has said, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. That's not just a polite custom. That actually sets the tone for the whole letter. It's a short letter, but it's one with wide impact and deep connections. So let's keep rolling. And again, remind you, you got spaces to, to observe, interpret, imply. The lines next to these verses are for you to take your own notes. As we continue to read in Scripture, these aren't, those aren't fill-ins. So let's go into verse 3. Paul, excuse me, th I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let me just frame this. From the first day until now is about 10 years difference. Paul planted the church in Philippi about 10 years prior to writing this letter. That's a long time. A lot of things can happen in 10 years. And he's, he's missing his friends. Now, I'm, I think it's safe to say that we have all been missed or have missed someone. And maybe the person you have missed or been missed by is sitting next to you right now. If that's the case, just give them a little squeeze or a fist bump that they loved you enough to have missed you at some point in this journey. Go ahead and do that. There you go. Get it out of your system. All right, good. Now, I know that when I go away on a trip, or I, even I'm away for a long day of work, that when I go home, that I will be excitedly greeted with expressions of joy and a welcome home kiss because I am loved by my dog, Riley. <laughs> Never fails. Never fails. You may have been thinking I was going to say my family, and they are there as well, but you got to understand that Riley misses anyone who's gone for any amount of time, and she's always glad that they come home. <laughs> and Paul is missing his friends. And he's writing specifically to them a letter to greet and exchange his, his affection, to say thank you, to encourage them, and to challenge them. He wants to thank them for his support. But here's the deal. He is not just using a letter to maintain relationship. He is investing in them through prayer. He doesn't just write a letter. He actually prays for them. And that's huge because the most important thing we can do for someone is to pray. That's the most important thing we can do for anyone is to pray to invest in them in a manner where they understand who God is. They experience who he is as we pray for them. The most important thing you can do for your spouse, for your kids, for your neighbor is to pray. The most important thing we can do for anyone is to pray for them. And, and Paul's modeling that. He's in verse 3, I, I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers. Paul's letter is marked by joy. It's one of the hallmarks of this letter. But living sent, investing in others was not just a job. It captured his heart, and it drove his life, and it drove him to pray. And I wonder who you pray for. Or better yet, I wonder what drives you to pray. Is it, is it thanks or is it a need? 
Is it praise or a problem? Praise is about him. Problems are often just about us. And it's okay to go to our Heavenly Father and, and ask of him and, 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 and plead and, and beg because he wants to care for us. But I wonder what percentage of your prayers are marked by problems as opposed to praise. And how much of your prayers are about you as opposed to somebody else? Paul was someone who prayed not just once. He prayed a lot, and he, he prayed on behalf of others. We know he prayed more than once because in verse 4 it says, In all my prayers, I pray for all of you with thankfulness, with praise. And the reason he did that was because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership. That, that word is probably better translated fellowship. It's the word koinonia. And some of you may know that word. It really spoke more to community. It's not just the idea that we give people information, they make a decision, they get saved and we're done. No, we, they experience salvation and then we walk together in fellowship, in relationship. We continue to advance the gospel with the, in, in that community dynamic. We're not just a people who are saved, we're people who, are, who have been saved, who are positioned to live sent in an ongoing partnership with others to fulfill the Great Commission. Yet, I wonder if God would describe our relationship with him today as koinonia, as fellowship. Are we just living saved or are we actually living sent? Actually investing beyond. Have we stopped the belief? There's a difference between saved and sent. Saved leads to sent. Sent is the ongoing reality. In fact, the only two reasons we're still here are either to get right with God or to help others get right with God. Those are the only two things that we're positioned to do. And if you have not yet received Jesus as your Savior, he's waiting for you to get right with God. If you've already done that, he's waiting for you to invest in others so that they can experience a relationship with God. And Paul goes on to describe this in verse 6. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God helps us grow until he finishes what he wants to do. He works toward completion until Jesus comes. He'll continue to do that when we let him. When we submit, he continues to love us toward completion until the very end. Because our God, he always finishes what he starts. God always finishes what he starts. And if you're someone who's struggling and you're discouraged at your progress spiritually and what you're doing in your spiritual life, know that God, when God starts a project, he's faithful to finish it. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion when we remain submitted to him, to his plans, to his designs. Have you ever heard of uh, the Winchester House? Anybody raise your hand if Bettendorf, you know, any, heard of the Winchester House? Okay, this is, a, this is a popular mansion in San Jose, California. And it was the residence of Sarah Winchester, who was the widow of the gun magnate William Wirt Winchester. Now, here's the deal. Under her supervision and guidance, construction for this facility, this mansion, proceeded around the clock without interruption from 1884, hang with me, from 1884 to 1922. 38 years of nonstop, ongoing construction. Now, beyond that 38-year process, the cost of this whole journey was estimated in 1922 to be $5.5 million, which today would be roughly $70 million invested to build this mansion. But it's known for its size, yet it's also known for its complete lack of master building plan. It has, let me show you a couple other pictures. It has stairways that lead nowhere. 
It has doors that lead nowhere. These stairways and doors, they make no sense because there, there was no intentional big-picture plan to go through the process, and they continued that work for 38 years. Let me read you a couple other facts. There are 160 rooms. There were seven stories prior to the 1906 earthquake. It now has four. 162 acres, two basements, 10,000 windows, 467 doorways, 47 fireplaces, 17 chimneys, 40 bedrooms, five or six kitchens, 40 staircases, 52 skylights, two ballrooms, and get this, wait for it, zero blueprints. Zero. She drew everything on napkins and tablecloths. Craziness. Listen, unlike Mrs. Winchester, God has a master plan, and he is faithful to complete it. He finishes what he starts. And as we remain submitted to him, he's able to do that. Even Jesus declared, it is finished on the cross. And when he did that, he wasn't saying the work was done. He was saying the ability to step into full life and relationship with God was done. But the work remains. And the work continues until it is finished. Because Jesus has made it possible. And God works until the work is complete. And Paul desired to see that work done. Verse 7 in Philippians it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, regardless of the circumstances of life, regardless of the best of times, worst of times realities in your life, God is able to bring about his purposes. His, his purposes can be realized. He's bigger than the things you face. He's bigger than the challenges that you experience in life. And he is always calling us to more because he wants to finish what he started. And that positions us to live expectantly and to ask, what if? What if? You see, movements are about what can be, not what has been. The great movements of God are always about what can be, not what has been. So don't allow discouragement to derail you. Don't allow the past or even the present to define your future. Your past and present can inform your future, but let God define your future. When you feel incomplete or unfinished or, or even lacking, remember that God has committed to finish what he starts. Take joy in that and lean into him in that. Now, I realize for some of you, there's a struggle here because you're thinking of someone else. You're thinking of that loved one that's been on a long journey who has struggled and made decisions that have had consequences. It is never easy to watch that. You can feel helpless, especially when they make certain decisions that make it worse. But let me ask you, have you given up on them? Have you given up on God's ability to finish what he starts? Have you lost hope that God can or will draw them back to himself? Don't. <laughs> Don't give up. Choose to live expectantly. Pray expectantly. Ask what if. Because the prayer offered in faith can make all the difference. James talks about that. That the prayer offered in faith can make the sick person well. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer offered expectantly, asking what if, is powerful. And the best way to influence or help someone is to pray for them. So who are you to pray for? 
Who has God positioned in your life to pray for expectantly? If you're not praying for anyone, either you're utterly alone or incredibly self-focused. Because the most important thing we can do for someone is pray for them. The most important thing you can do for your spouse, for your kids, for your family, for your parents, for your neighbor, is to pray for them. So let me move to so what and leave you with one final what if question. One that sets the tone for the rest of this journey. The question is what if we prayed like Paul? What if you and I, we prayed like Paul? See, even while he was in Roman confinement, Paul never forgot that he was sent. He never lost his passion or focus. Even though he couldn't continue to plant churches and fulfill God's directive to him, he continued to live expectantly from prison, praying and investing beyond himself, understanding he was still sent. What if we prayed like Paul? See, and and Paul prayed for love. Look, Look at this. Verse 9, and this is my prayer, that, you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Paul prayed for love. Love for God, love for others. And the Bible talks about faith, hope, and love, but it's very clear that love is the greatest of them. And Paul prays for love because love is the key that provides the ability to test and sort out what is best and what is not. What's best of times, worst of times. Look at verse 10. He's praying for this love so that they, or you, may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When when we take a posture of expectantly living with eyes of love, when, when love abounds in us, we're able to discern We're able to live pure and blameless lives. We have fruit in our life marked by righteousness, and it leads to the glory and praise of God. When we live that way, God's able to work and move. And and Paul in these verses is saying, look, here's the impact and influence of love. If we live expectantly and we choose to live with love, we begin to see as God does. We see the world differently, and we can expectantly ask what-if questions with the same confidence that Paul had. If we would choose to trust in Jesus and choose to live in love, asking what if? What if we prayed like Paul? What if? You know, we're going to take a moment to step into worship through giving and worship through music, but we're also going to pray. We're going to pray before that. It's an opportunity to even pray like Paul. And as we get ready to do that, I, I want to just remind you, many of you know this, that this week, tomorrow, about 90 youth from the Heritage family are heading to a never-the-same camp this week. In previous years, we've seen kids make first-time decisions for Jesus, recommitments, and even receive calls to ministry to go to their own Macedonias. I want to pray as we not only acknowledge our opportunity to give in worship, but I want to pray for that NTS experience now asking a what-if question. What if God wanted to do something very unique this week in those 90 kids and the hundreds of kids coming from other churches around the nation where he started revival? What if he was going to do something specific in this week that would be the catalyst of seeing these cities changed? So I want to invite you to join me as I pray 
as we get ready to step back into worship through song and giving. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I love that you chose a person like Paul. You led him out of his dysfunction. You redeemed him and you gave him purpose. And you positioned him to live sent. And because of what he did, we actually, we were beneficiaries of that investment. His faithfulness to go, his, his willingness not to be satisfied with his heart being changed, but knowing that cities needed to be transformed as well. And he went. Father, I pray that you would help us to live with eyes of love, asking what-if questions, to be expectant, not, not to choose our own comfort, to lean back on our heels and choose what is safe, but to actually lean forward with you and to expectantly engage in, in, in just obedient actions that allow you to do more than we can ask or imagine. I pray that you'd forgive us for moments where we have chosen to live more saved than sent, but also where we have maybe not been expectant, maybe where we've stopped praying for someone else, maybe where we've just made it about us. But Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to live asking what if. And I want to pray specifically for those teens that are heading out tomorrow. God, what if? What if you, your Holy Spirit fell in a way that you started something unstoppable? Lord, what if your anointing was upon pastors Nate and Zach and the, and the volunteers who are going with them to, to have the right conversations with teens so that they would make first-time decisions for you, to, to be encouragers and counselors and disciplers in a way where there were our recommitments, but also where kids accept clear calls to their own Macedonias? Lord, what if you were going to use this year's NTS as a catalyst of transforming these cities in which we live? What if, God, we were positioned in a manner where you would do that with a ripple for generations to come? Lord, I pray for your anointing upon that time and your anointing upon us that we would be your people who live boldly and expectantly asking what if for your glory and not our own. I love you and I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.